You're listening to the Punk Theology Podcast. A young lady on a children's program came up with the following. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Parental advisory, the following audio program contains explicit language. You've been warned. least we've been each other's teachers and that meaning that we rub each other the wrong way and you know the way I see relationship is that it's a mirror for what's going on inside of yourself and so yeah we've been big mirrors for each other <laughs> which has created a lot of growth because of the kind of people that we are. I'm generally an extrovert and I wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm not the kind of person you would look at and go oh that guy must stuff his energy or suppress his feelings I'm just I don't come off that way. I, I don't think of myself that way. But I'm going through this work, and I'm realizing, oh, I suppress a lot. I really stuffed a lot down, and I really, I'll deal with those questions later. I'll think those thoughts later. I'll run with those curiosities later. Right now, I'm uh, doing whatever the Lord's work, whatever kind of thing I was buying into at the time, and going through a time now realizing that it, well, it's time to heal from that and the ways I would kind of stuff it. It's surprising because I just wouldn't have thought of myself that way. But I'm learning, oh yeah, that's why there's all this stuff coming up because I'm suppressing it. I can't measure it. It doesn't exist. So you can't control it? No, it doesn't exist. So it doesn't... When you say show it, it to me. Well, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it! <laughs> it might not be great with the mic on, but I can show you how to do it. Yeah, I can show you energy. That's not hard. It's not hard to show you how this magnetic field around your body moves. It's quite easy. So. And the problem is we have very different words to describe different yeah. phenomena, or the same phenomena, right? The experiences in your past where people have tried to take advantage using, like, when you talk about mm. snake oil, yeah. that's, I mean, I know that when Derek and I talk about this kind of stuff, I'm a lot more um, accepting of kind of mystic language than he is. Just That's just how we're different. And uh, he's always very hesitant, very s skeptical, because he's seen so many situations where somebody uses that kind of language to take advantage of somebody. Well, this is why, this is what my, and my point is, and in the work that we do, is, is very much about where, what if, we, what if we take a human experience? Okay, so like Chuck had an experience, right? Moved energy, comes back, he's not smoking anymore, right? As opposed to any of that, if it triggers us, as opposed to being able to go, that's amazing. It should, ideally speaking, spark deep curiosity and maybe even a fascination or a motivation yeah. to go, hey, unless we're going to deny, suppress, put up walls and shields because it doesn't fit the narrative I want it to fit. So, and, and that happens in the scientific world just as much as it does in any new age or spiritual or religious world. I just, I just remember spacing out and being like, what the fuck are these two talking about? Like, uh, Russ... Like you hang out with some crazy motherfucker. <laughs> oh, it's really shit out of me. Okay. Um, and it's, I didn't have a language for it, and I didn't want to know it. Yeah. It would get went against all of my Christian understanding. Sure. And that's, I don't know, it's interesting. Um. Um, I have never been a person that, I mean, I got a 4.0 in grad school. I was like voted best student of the year when I graduated, but I have never enjoyed the frontal lobe. <laughs> so that's not, yeah, I, when I operate in the subjective spiritual realm, I'm home.
This is episode number 29, season one of the podcast. I'm your host, Russ Shaw. How do you have fun and make light of a serious discussion about healing, growth, maturity? Uh, you put nine people in a room of various degrees of mental health. <laughs> Today, our very special guests, who we are very humbled and honored to have on as punks in this topic of healing, growth, rapid transformation, what one wants, what one expects of life, what one desires to be free from. Where I come from isn't all that great. My automobile is a piece of crap. My fashion sense is a little whack. And my friends are just as creepy as me. I didn't go to boarding schools. Preppy girls never looked at me. Why should they? I ain't nobody got nothing in my pocket. Yes, that's a little bumper promo, we call it, by the band Weezer Beverly Hills. There is a Spotify playlist for the bumper music on this podcast, if you'd like to hear it in its entirety. Maybe follow the bands. Just search uh, Punk Theology on Spotify. Does it feel like that? Uh, for some, it feels like Beverly Hills, the song by Weezer. And for some of us, it feels... Like this bumper from the punk band Off With Their Heads. The song's called Nightlife. There you go. What does that stand for? That's not a word. Yes. The abbreviation. Yeah, it's an acronym. <laughs> it's actually not even an acronym. It's an uh, initialism. Yes. Initialism? <laughs> if you actually say the word, it's an initialism. If There's you, somebody. If you, if it makes Rapid it transformational word, therapy. Mm. Yeah. That's what we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about that a little bit today. I but, call uh, it voodoo magic. <laughs> he calls it voodoo magic. Yeah. Yeah, we'll... Uh, <clears throat> but we'll get into it. So you had questions about what we what we do here as a podcast. I guess I'm more curious about your interconnection, how you guys... How we all know each other? Yeah, how you know each other. Well, I know these two guys from Mars Hill Church. Don't point use names. <laughs> these are... this. Yes. <laughs> this is audio, by the way. There's no video here. <laughs> this is news to the listeners. So, yes. Good job. Yeah. Right? There's blind person at the table. Um... John and Derek, I've known these guys from uh, from Mars Hill 
in geez Ballard shoreline Everett shoreline yeah Everett it kind of went that way um, I know Chuck and Steve from Port Gardner Church which was where Leo my friend Leo was yes. going after Mars Hill collapsed after I quit going to Mars Hill because my pastor friend Phil was fired for not signing a no-compete clause. Mm. Yeah, I'm out. Like, I took a lot of shit from that place. You know, probably should have left a long time ago. A lot of recovery people left, and early. my friend Leo and I stayed. Yeah, they left pretty early. Mike Wilkerson's probably the one that stuck around the longest. But, you know, everyone kept saying, well, that place needs guys like you. But you guys are leaving? Yeah, we're out. <laughs> we just can't deal with it anymore, but we're out. So, uh, so yeah, that's how I know these guys. And then, uh, and then you guys were both people at that church that I saw as no bullshit kind of guys who were really seeking, like seeking truth. Not just sitting in church, you know, kind of like listening to a sermon and being spoon-fed Bullshit. <laughs> you can say it. I know. I wasn't, wasn't going to say that. I wasn't checking a box. But there's people that are just attenders. Like, this is yeah. what we do. It's Sunday, and I go and I listen to a sermon, and then I go home, and then. Uh, but you guys were, you, you know, you're outside the box thinkers. Um, Misha, as well, who just left. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> so interesting. <laughs> she, uh, she went to Mars Hill as well and was a part of the community groups that, that you guys were part of. crap already. That's right. She's getting her knitting. There you go. Be a long night, what she's yeah. <laughs> and I know Arthur from the Hearfs that we would do, which actually started out as a Mars Hill thing. With uh, who was the guy, the old bastard guy? Well, we used to I don't know beer. if I agree with that, but <laughs> the Hearfs. Who's that? Yeah. Tim Query. We yeah. together. I did it way before. Yeah, and I had my own thing too. Okay. Yes. So, so the history's fuzzy. Hearf, yeah. It's like a fraternity of cigar smoking. I've got a Monte Cristo Nice. So we get together and hang out periodically, smoke cigars, and just create space for, I guess, men to just get together and hang out and exchange ideas. And we have a misogynist No, I don't think so. Be transparent a little bit. We were at Mark's Hill, so I guess the accusation could have some weight. Yeah. But no, I don't think so. We did talk a little bit deeper on a lot of topics, and people, some people left. Yeah, I would say a lot of hard times. The groups tended to segregate. And that there'd be one corner with the guys talking about sports and bullshit, and then the other <laughs> corner was, which was fine, right? That's fine. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. No, and the other corner was guys talking about, you know, their shit. Yeah. And so and and uh, well, and we still get together and do that every once in a while, and it still kind of segregates itself like that. <clears throat> but nobody, I mean, nobody really wants to listen to a podcast of guys talking about their shit. But really, really, nobody wants to listen to a podcast about guys talking about. Sports. Plenty of those out there. That's right. Yeah, those people get paid to be on the radio. Right. In sports media. <laughs> I know a guy. I know a guy who's like a commentator guy. You know, at an ESPN thing, and he just he he, he literally is this close to blowing his brains out. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's, like, he's like, I mean, I, he loves soccer, but he's just like, you talk about it this much after a while, it starts to feel that like. 
Yeah. <laughs> what am I talking about? If you do anything that you love for eight hours a day, it becomes a job. Exactly. That's exactly. right. <laughs> exactly. The greatness in sports does not lie in the talking of it. No, no that's right. So, Amy, um, how long have you two been married? Mm. We'll just Actually, get right into well, your relationship. Yeah, right? Love life. Yeah, do you want 14 anything years. <laughs> 14 years. <laughs> do you want anything else from I've us, by the so way? For the listeners, she consulted with Seth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, is there any other questions that you have for us? Oh, no. I... I think I'm good. I'll just ask them as we go along. All right. Before I start pressing in. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, 14 years, you guys have two kids. Mm-hmm. And it's been just like, you guys are like Ken and Barbie. It's been just perfect the whole time, right? Yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> We've always described it was pretty much hell on earth yeah. for the first big chunk. About ten years. Yeah, but really, especially the first seven. Yeah. And they didn't move to more like a Hades slash purgatory. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like yeah. upgrade. Yeah. To say the least, we've been each other's teachers in that, meaning that we rub each other the wrong way and. You know, the way I see relationship is that it's a mirror for what's going on inside of yourself. And so, yeah, we've been big mirrors for each other, <laughs> which has created a lot of growth because of the kind of people that we are. So, yeah. Take me to um, one of those those dark moments that you guys really started to seek healing. Because you both grew up Christian, right? Yeah. Very... Mm-hmm. Pentecostal. I know a lot more about Seth's background with that than, yeah, than you. How, how did your? Yeah, I wasn't too. raised Pentecostal. Okay. Um, I was raised in a non-denominational church. Um, I loved Jesus from when I was tiny. I felt a strong connection, and was like totally into the faith, like a child thing. Like was already um, actively healing people and. Um, knowing things, but I didn't, I didn't know it, I guess. Right. Back. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Where did you grow up? Renton. Okay. Mm-hmm. Local. Cool. How did you guys meet? We met high school. Um, the first time I saw Seth, he was in a talent show on this little boys ensemble and he was, had the mic and he was trying to sing, but he couldn't because he was so embarrassed. So <laughs> up. And I just looked at him and I thought, oh my gosh. So I was fourteen. Yeah, I was fifteen. She was fourteen. Oh wow! Long time ago. So, um, yeah, and I, you know, he was an identical twin. So back then, I was like, which one should I like? I talked (laughs) to my friends that knew the Taylor twins, Um, but I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> she's just eating my mouth. That's why she's with me. David's with Kylie Yokers. Yeah, you say general, so I can give be him sitting here, you know? Yeah. So when did you guys first start to see the kind of Christian, you know, holes in the in the thing? The, the guy working the the thing from the behind the curtain. The yeah. Christian. Yeah, like your denominational, I don't know. Because oh, well, you guys are not like... I'm Orthodoxy, sort of. I'm going to say that I'm not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Okay. What's what does Christian it mean, anyway? We, like, we, could, uh, we could throw that around as well. Yeah, well, it's, well, it's, it's really, something we discuss a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, when I began this healing work, I felt a connection and longing with something that was unknown to me uh-huh. and that was connected to my heritage which I didn't know how to access because 
there was nothing like that really around me. And so um, I kind of actually divorced myself from my spirituality for a while and um, then eventually realized in terms of continuing my, continuing my healing, I wouldn't be able to continue to heal if I didn't reconnect there, which triggered me in all sorts of ways. So in terms of holes in theology and that sort of thing, I would say that when I was in grad school, I first started really being pushed. I had this one professor named Dr. Steve Bearden, and he would wear a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt to, cons- or to class, and he, but at this, my experience of him was he was like a sage. And he'd been a pastor, and he'd done all this great work, and he's you know, a tenured professor at George Fox University. And Did you go to George Fox? I went there for grad school. Did you? I went to George Fox for two years. Yeah. That's weird. What did you say? A master's in counseling. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, he really, my experience of him and the depth of his questions and the way he was with his students and then the things that he would talk about, like he'd say, I'm like a Hindu, Buddhist, Christian. And I was like, ah! I mean, I <laughs> my advisor was just freaking out. But she'd um, come home and be like... We'd take a walk, like, I don't know, can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first, and then because of training to be a clinician, you know, I mean, he would say, look for the divine spark in every person that you encounter as a clinician and work with that. And, um, which is still like one of my favorite quotes. Um, so he created a lot of confusion and crisis of belief in me, but I really initially clung to my Christian beliefs. But I also simultaneously was given assignments where I needed to, you know, go and be with someone who was of a different faith or a different religious system and experience them and be really, truly curious and write about it. And because you can't really be a clinician if you're not going to be able to be open to all sorts of diverse people with diverse things going on in their life. And the way that your spiritual paradigm is really informs, like, you know, what you think the problem is how you think you're going to address the problem and what your treatment goals are um, and then what your whole family system is and your community around you and how they're going to be interacting with you systemically. So um, things started softening for me at that point. And then uh, when I turned almost 30, we decided that we would just go off the pill because, hey, I'm almost 30, I'm in grad school, but what the fuck? Like, (laughs) just might as well see if we can have babies. Uh And... um, but it ended up being a very long road for us. And so that, you know, created a lot of questions in terms of my thoughts about who God is and why won't you give us a baby? And here uh-huh. I am, I'm a clinician working with young children and infants and, you know, right. parents. And, Where's the karma? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. There's um, so much stuff in the Bible about infertility yeah and right it's like it's a curse it's a curse from god and it was just such a part of our upbringing oh, <laughs> yeah man. yeah, so yeah it, it, it's a real it was a real gift to be honest yeah and i started um i really wanted more natural treatments and so i started acupuncture and when i went in there being like i have no idea what this hocus pocus is and it started healing me like i had severe foot problems and i could had to wear like custom orthotics and i got acupuncture for fertility stuff, which, you know, they do different meridians and it affects your system, but all of a sudden my feet were healed. I'm like, there's something to this energy stuff. And right. so it started opening me up. To, to more of a curiosity about energies and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and alternative means towards health and healing. Right. 
So when was your first, uh, when, when you guys started to be introduced to this rapid transformational therapy? Through White Raven Center, or like, how yeah. did you guys find out about through that? Through his brother, through Seth's brother. Okay. Seth, you know, they talk, they're so close, they talk all the time, and it's like one fluid conversation that just keeps going. And <laughs> they have so to share the same When his brain brother experienced kind of transformation um, through the White Raven Center, then. So he lives in Alaska. He did. He did. He did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He did, and. Um, so then Seth was exposed to it, and with Seth and the pornography addiction and not feeling like he could stop something that he wanted to stop, part of him wanted to stop, and his brother started speaking into his life and Seth started just practicing the brother stuff his brother suggested because he trusts his brother yeah. implicitly, and um, they started doing things. I was in traditional therapy, but um, not talk therapy. I was doing something called lifespan integration, which moves past your like frontal lobe and all the like complex egoic um, stories we have in place to keep us stuck. And um, so it was really accessing different parts of my brain and in my body to bring up the story and the energy. But um, it was much more structured and clinical than rapid transformational therapy. I see. So, and that was actually the first time I ever experienced chips before that. When I was in grad school, they required that we be in therapy to be clinicians. Right. And I saw a woman, and I adored her, and she started teaching me around about um, my trust issues and the issues that come up in my relationship with Seth related to my attachment, and because I was adopted seven months, was with two other placements before that. And, um, but at that point, I just felt really, like, screwed, because... You know, she'd say, have meta-awareness. And I'm like, fuck, I can't. Like, I get triggered. I just look so shit, you know? Right. So I felt like I had, like, cement blocks on my legs. And no matter what, no matter how much understanding and awareness I had, I was not able to make any shifts. Um, and so when I started Lifespan Integration, because it does, you do di- digest energy and metabolize things that are in your body, I started... Sometimes I would be like totally blissed out afterwards, or I would suddenly hear a different dialogue in my head, like in the midst of conflict, like, I love you, it's okay. And I was like, what is this? Like, I didn't try to do anything, it just started happening. Um, And I also did some EMDR, eye movement rapid desensitization, so... Okay. Do you do that? Like, you you learn some of that? I'm in lifespan integration, not in EMDR. Okay. Um... If I were practicing with my license, then I would definitely train EMDR because I think it's highly valuable. Mm-hmm. I had EMDR three hours ago. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, How long have you been doing it? Just about three months. Mm-hmm. My six, my sister is about eight months in right now, too. Mm-hmm. I have low T trauma or small T trauma. Forgive me if I'm not familiar with the nomenclature, but yeah, it's been, it's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty intense. Yeah. So I actually feel a little exhausted right now because of it. Sometimes, sure. like, right. like afterwards, you feel tired or whatever. Yeah, right. Right. yeah. yeah it's you're integrating. Yeah. yeah, your body has to, when you remove that kind of energy from the body, like your body has to just kind of basically get used to it. Mm-hmm. It's like if I took out your spleen and <laughs> figure out how to, like, how do we do now, you know? What do we do? Yeah, and it, it takes a lot of, a lot mm-hmm. of energy to reset that. Definitely something, too. It's powerful. Yeah. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was your analogy about losing weight? I like that one a lot. I, you're an 800 pound man. Oh yeah. Well, with regards to process or maybe being impatient, because what I found through a lot of it, and and again, just just a, a few months in, is it's like uh, 
you know, you ever see those shows like a morbidly obese person and they get their stomach stapled mm -hmm. and, uh, and oh, you know, wow, that, that guy lost 400 pounds, but he still like weighs 400. <laughs> so it's like, sometimes like with my negativity bias, I have tendency to focus on the fact that I still weigh 400 pounds instead mm -hmm. of having gratitude for the 400 I lost. But yeah. that's been part of my process. But I think that's slowly shifting and that it, it's moving in a, more positive direction, but yeah. there's definitely been some turbulence with it. It's yeah. not, it hasn't been easy for sure. So, well, and that, and that's the ego's kind of structure that's like, it's quite, you know, it, it, a lot of this is about if you imagine ego sitting there, it's been holding on your shit for so long, mm -hmm. and you're just starting to take it away. Mm -hmm. and that's the ego just kind of, I want to, yeah, yeah, I'm so used to it. Like, what are you doing, man? And I take it away, so it's just that wrestling, that tension. It's almost like one of those cheese pizzas. It's just well, the dance away. has to change between you and your ego. Yeah. That was the biggest issue I had after White Raven in Duval. It's just the drive home, just realizing of the like dissociation that I would have. Yeah. And just my ego is still trying to remove my you know, my presentness. Yeah. Mm. And you had a powerful like healing thing happen with that, right? Yeah. Like that was a life altering Yeah, quit smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Like a side effect, just all, yeah, yeah. Go to, all of a sudden, Chuck doesn't well, smoke anymore. Yeah, we, you know, we joke about the. <clears throat> I go to White Raven to deal with my past sexual abuse, and I come home not smoking anymore. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've been trying to quit smoking for actively for like ten years now, wow. and then just don't care to have a cigarette anymore. Wow, they could market that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny because like if, if you look at it as you have this traumatic energy in your body and everything we do these little compulsive things are medicating yeah. these things sometimes you just lose some of that energy that you're medicating you don't even know it like I, I used to be a, I was an addict for poker would you agree yeah I, I mean I was a poker addict and and at some point I just lost all desire to play I still think it's a great game and you know if somebody called me and said hey we'll play a little you know you know, five dollar poker I'm like yeah that'd be fun but like I just I used to play high stakes and I never I mean they have this totally lost any desire and I don't know when or where it happened I just know that something came out of me that was right. being medicated in that space so. and that's what's different about this therapy is that it's not so much like talk therapy mm. which is also helpful but talk therapy is you know I mean there's papers written and a lot of history behind it mm. um, as a way to start releasing because so I think for me that was that was the first kind of therapy that I understood. I mean, my mom was sending me to counselors when I was, jeez, when my mom and dad got divorced. So like eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. And then later, at, uh, when I was a teenager, um, I was in rehab because I, I drank a lot of booze and died for two minutes. Right. So, so they, uh, yeah, so then I had to, you know, see a counselor about my low self-esteem, which was funny the way that I unpacked that, which I thought was helpful to to understand where where a lot of my you know not liking myself came from, but I think the remedy was was bad in the sense that they just gave me a big right like they just shot my ego in the arm, which wasn't super helpful, maybe saved my life i don't know one therapist said but but a lot of this was I had a lot of shit inside that I wasn't talking about, a lot of it was my Christian upbringing too because you don't talk about that stuff because you're you're a sinner, you know. Jesus saved you from that, don't you know? Yeah. <laughs> so the more you can, I don't know, ignore it, then it goes away. Is that kind of 
how some of us believe. I don't know. Or you deal with it twenty years later. Yes, yeah. without, without reprocessing. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm generally an extrovert, and I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I'm not the kind of person you would look at and go, "Oh, that guy must stuff his energy or suppress his feelings." I'm just I don't come off that way. I, I don't think of myself that way. But I'm going through this work, and I'm realizing, oh, I suppressed a lot. I really stuffed a lot down, and I really wasn't true to myself in a lot of ways because I'll deal with those questions later. I'll think those thoughts later. I'll run with those curiosities later. Right now, uh, doing whatever the Lord's work, whatever kind of thing I was buying into at the time, and going through a time now realizing that it, well, it's time to heal from that and the ways I would kind of stuff it. It's surprising because I just wouldn't have thought of myself that way, but I'm learning, oh, yeah, that's why there's all this stuff coming up because I'm suppressing it and yeah. shutting it down. Problem so, with talk therapy can be good for a lot of things, but it's not all that great for talk, for dealing with trauma uh, because a lot of the trauma kind of gets bound up in the limbic system, which is the amygdala and the hippocampus. And there is a connection between the frontal lobe, which is where you're doing talk therapy, to that, but it's kind of like there's a tunnel connecting them that's kind of a pinhole tunnel. Like, you can draw it out, but it takes a really long time. You just got to be pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And EMDR and RTT is kind of like, okay, we're just going to bypass the frontal lobe completely. Like, get that out of the way, and then we're going to deal with that stuff. You know, we don't need the middleman anymore of drawing this through this pinhole. We can just get in there and Well, some of too, is, is carry things somatically in the body. And, right. You know, or two. you know, another name for the body is the subconscious mind and... It gets down to that level. And yeah, you start. Well, yeah. I, don't, I don't see the, the brain, like, even when you're talking about the amygdala and you're talking about you know, the way the brains function with that, I don't see it necessarily as the place that the trauma is held. Well, as I think so. The place is where the trauma is There's actually a lot of stuff even on the vagus nerve, right? Yeah. Like, like, and that's really connected heavily to the limbic system. Right. Um, and it, you know, different things at different places. Like, the, the cortisol binding seems to happen in hypocampus among. So. Let me take a step back from that. Arthur and I tend to deal with these things from a material language standpoint. And one of the things that Arthur and I both get strongly triggered by is the kind of idealistic spiritual language. Which is describing, it's basically using a different story to describe the same thing. But all the words in the idealistic spiritual language trigger the fuck out of <laughs> like we just like you have any idea nope why? I'm done. You have any idea why it triggers you guys? When you say move energy, yeah, I can't measure it. it doesn't exist. So you can't control it. No, it doesn't exist. That's well, that's not it, true though. So it doesn't. When you say show it, it to me, well, I can do it. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> it might not be great with the mic on, but I can show you how to do it. Yeah, I can show you energy. That's not hard. It's not hard to show you how this magnetic field around your body moves. It's quite easy. And the problem is we have very different words to describe different yeah. phenomena, or the same phenomena, right? right. Like, the, like what would be happening, you would describe to Arthur using your language, and he would say, oh, I have a really good explanation for that, but he uses none of the words that you just used. Sure. But, the, but you didn't answer the question. The question is, why does it trigger you so much? Yeah, like as opposed to just, well, just disagree with it or just right. dismiss it. Why let it bother you? Why does that trigger you so much? Why do you choose the language? That's not that's not a question I'm answering is why does it trigger you so badly? It it's it's more than one reason. Part of it is um, I appreciate uh, being articulate and using the term moving energy right. 
an energy that is, for as far as I can tell, something we don't have a device to detect or measure or other than human experience. Right. Um, so it's like we're taking a label of something that has scientific meaning, that has meaning in the English language, and we're applying it to something that isn't what's supported by our language. It's not supported by our science. So it's not supported by the, the, it, it's, by the narrative that you need. Because the question of why does it trigger you is a deeper question, right? Because you, you seem to require a scientific narrative and a scientific language to be able to fit this into the thing. Where somebody like, or some other people can just kind of go, well, I can accept that and it works for me. Or they so need, or they don't need a scientific, or they're sure. actually triggered by the scientific stuff. And sure, yeah, some guys on the other side, they get yeah, triggered by the scientific thing. language. Right. So the question is, why does it, why does it trigger you somehow? Why, why does that surge in emotion? Why does that kind of thing happen? Uh, part of it because it's a misuse of a language that actually has real meaning. Like, make up a word, call it like, you know... For you. Let, meaning for you. Right? It's a deeply personal thing you're talking about. No, I'm talking about actual accepted meaning. Like, By like who? Merriam-Webster dictionary, socially accepted exists. But the meaning is accepted for a lot of other people. The question is, why does it trigger you that? That's the only thing meaningful here. When we talk about, when we talk about therapy or we're talking about healing... The question is, why does it affect us the way it does? Where is that sitting inside of us? Where does it come from? Why the surge of emotion? Why the, you know what I mean? Especially for any of us who've been through religious trauma, which it seems like everyone has at some level. You know, if we're talking about what, why, why do we need it to fit into a certain space in order to accept it? Why can't we accept what other people are experiencing? Going, it obviously has meaning. Because so I can't like, understand what you're trying to accomplish by hijacking words that have other meaning so already in the language. It's giving language yeah. to experience. I'm suggesting it does. Right. And and it's very similar to the pure propaganda of snake oil and bullshit. They do the same thing. So in my mind, part of the triggering part is that you're affiliating yourself with Are you seeing affiliation with? The, the oh any skeptic would. Is it because is it because of the the experiences in your past where people have tried to take advantage using, like, when you talk about snake oil, yeah. that's, I mean, I know that when Derek and I talk about this kind of stuff, I'm a lot more um, accepting of kind of mystic language than he is. Just That's just how we're different. And uh, he's always very hesitant, very skeptical, because he's seen so many situations where somebody uses that kind of language to take advantage of somebody who's looking for healing, who's looking mm-hmm. for, you know, release from trauma. And doesn't actually accomplish anything they just end up giving them a lot of money when you use subjective language all the power of the definition lies with the person using the word right so i can say i'm going to move energy in you and now that is anything that you feel sure and i have complete power over you so if i so i I can mold that if i use a really broad vague word i can mold whatever experience you have to fit my purposes of course, yeah. Right. So, the, so, so the so the question is, and, and this is all any articulation or language or healing or teaching is always about search for language, right? Mm-hmm. But it's fascinating when you get to the point where you go, oh, well, you know. So, I mean, if you get into quantum theory, get into quantum mechanics, we are talking about energy. It's exactly what it is. We're talking about quantum energy, subatomic energy, and you can we can use all kinds of scientific language, but energy works. The problem yeah. is nobody actually understands quantum. No, it's theory, right? right? It's quantum. Well, it's, it's worse than theory. It's, it's uh, not worse than theory. It's, and, and now, well, I mean, so it's now, so new, and, it's, and it doesn't fit. Like, it's not experiential. 
deeply uh, experiential. Well, it's not. So it's it's it comes back to the same problem that yeah. the definitions are so vague right. that anybody can make them mean whatever they want right. them to. Well, this is why this is what my and my point is, and in the work that we do is is very much about where what if we what if we take a human experience? Okay, so like Chuck had an experience, right? He went to White Raven, had an experience, moved energy, comes back, he's not smoking anymore, right? As opposed to any of that, if it triggers us, as opposed to being able to go, that's amazing. It should, ideally speaking, spark deep curiosity, right? And maybe even a fascination or a motivation to go, hey, unless we're going to deny, suppress, put up walls and shields because it doesn't fit the narrative I want it to fit. And, so, and that happens in the scientific world just as much as it does in any new age or spiritual or religious world. I think you know? it feels kind of lazy to allow something to be subjective that can be objective. Right? No, I say it's simple. The thing is, it's not. If, if we haven't discovered why yet... But, but that's know? your perspective on it. So I'm sure. explaining why that triggers me and right. possibly why that triggers Arthur. Right. It's because... We just have to take your word on it that that's what you're doing. Right, that's but that's not, not why it triggers you. That's my point. The, way, the reason it triggers you is because it's attached to some type of trauma that's being held by your... Your egos are managing trauma that is held in your body. Right. And that and, was the... Well, yeah, that yeah. comes back to the... Uh, and I yeah. had that experience when right. I first met you, Seth. Right. Um, when, Russ, when you did the podcast down in Capitol Hill or whatever, I just, yeah. I just remember spacing out and being like, what the fuck are these two talking about? Like... Russ, like you hang out with some crazy <laughs> motherfucker. Oh, it's really shit out of me. Um, and it's, I didn't have a language for it, and I didn't want to know it. It would get went against all of my Christian understanding, and that's, I don't know, it's interesting. Um, but I see you still have some of that too. Like you still hold, you Arthur, being, you were raised in a church, and so you still hold a lot of that. Uh, construct as far as the, so when you hear this language you, Trigger, it triggers you the trauma. It's, well, faith, the, it's faith language. I wouldn't say that it's, it's my background in the church it's my background and interest in science so I guess where I would go with that is how do you Amy hold kind of the bastardization language of what White Raven does mm-hmm. and I'm going to use that strong language to describe it because that's what I think it is um Versus what you were learning in school and the way that language was treated when you were being taught to be a clinician. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing those oh, don't guess. jive. Like, um, when, when did that transition they, happen for you where you're like, okay, I'm going to move from what's scholarly written about to this experiential thing and this language that isn't supported by any scientific papers? Mm-hmm. Unless yeah, you can provide I, one, which I would be awesome to read. So, yeah, people are trying. They're trying to. Yeah. Yeah, you know, what, right, and there are a lot of um, PhD level clinicians who do energy work and start there. Um, and it can be described more as like somatic psychotherapy, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I, it wasn't hard for me to make that leap because it didn't feel like a leap for me. For me, it was the experience of watching my brother-in-law 
watching my husband, doing my own lifespan integration, I had a great deal of resistance to doing it, mainly because Seth was like pressuring me, like, you need to do this because you're not changing enough, is how I felt. <laughs> and I wanted to be like, Hurry up. fuck you, I'm not doing it then. Okay. Although I was curious. <laughs> there was a deep curiosity in it, but I was so resistant because of the pressure. And, um, but eventually I did do it, and so when I experienced it, that was kind of all I needed. Now, I'm blind. I, I was blind and now I see, right? And I'm like, skeptical to that, <laughs> that style of like where it just passes by testimony, though. Like, if you want to raise it to the level of scholarly appreciation, then it needs a different language. That, that, and, and I would call it less triggering and more annoyance with yeah. the language that's used because I don't think the way that it exists now yeah. can be brought to that level of scholarly scrutiny. Well, it, 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 was, it will adopt new language to get there if it holds Arthur, true. haven't you also confirmed that you're okay with some of this stuff, too? I mean, the podcast that we recorded when I came back, you noted that I was completely different, in fact, that I was present, that I would shut up a lot of times and just sit there and, you know, hide in the corner, and now I'm not. You know, it's I, there's something that happened. Whether you want to, oh, yeah, no, there, to call it, there's too. no uh, part of me that's saying that what you experienced didn't happen. I just find the language highly distasteful, and it's it's a barrier for me. And that's <laughs> that's, the my, that's the point of my question. I go what, that barrier exists inside of you somewhere, and that's because it's it's triggering something where you're you're even even the, what we adopt is the stories that that we accept. Are, are, <clears throat> I mean, are most of the time, and I mean, this is a broad, it's a bit of a broad statement, but it's most of the time are a counterbalance to the trauma that we carry. That's what, that's how it works. I mean, why does a guy need to drive a Ferrari? <laughs> you know what I mean? He's balancing the trauma, and the stories that we create around us, you know, are are always counterbalancing. That's how the ego functions. So the ego will take all this kind of stuff, and I mean, you know, and what it, what the problem is, what it requires us is to suppress or deny. Or somehow create barriers between us and all the stories that would actually cause us to get to step outside of that. You know I mean, that's what we were when all of us were steeped in the church, right? Is that we're sitting there and you're just you're you're spending as much energy affirming the God as you are, and and then the other half of your energy is spent suppressing the other stories because everyone, every person being born in Saudi Arabia and being raised a Muslim is 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 a denial to your story that this is the truth. You know what I mean? And I mean, I don't know if any of you guys remember that first time you're like, wait a minute, like. <laughs> Geography and God are like a major problem here. You know, it's like you know where you start to go. This doesn't make sense. It's just the breaking dissonance. down. <laughs> yeah, no, just, it, it made sense. You just have to believe that God's a dick and right. It doesn't really well, care you, about everybody. You have to. It, it was always about affirming the story you needed to survive. Yeah, and that's what science does. Science moves in a religious space very much in that because the thing is, we don't have to deny. It. All we have to go is, hey, maybe we lack the language at this point, but that guy's story has an implication. Chuck's story has an implication for everyone here. It has an implication for the entire world. And so we spend tremendous amounts of energy suppressing, denying, suppressing, denying so that we can hold our story in that space. And if we become aware that, oh, yeah, wait a minute, this does, this is bringing up that gut thing inside of me, you know, then, then we can actually become aware of what's happening and how our, our body holds the trauma. Then we can start to heal and change. And that's why the true sages, they're fine with everybody. Everybody tells them tell them a story and they just hold it to be completely true because they realize the truth is a subjective reality experience. It's how it functions. You know, you can say, well, there is scientific truth. Yeah, but what? But half the world is denying it because they're living in their truth. You know what I mean? See, like, I, I disagree of, with that. I think there's a big tension there. 
that both objective truth exists and subjective, and all truth is subjective. I don't think you can, I think, so there's, I've been doing a lot of thinking on, on this line, or not the line, the gap between ideal and material. Uh, and a lot of the, the, the really deep thinkers on it, especially Hegel, who I go back to over and over again, uh, Alan Watts is really into this, uh, is that both are true. And if you land on either end, if you land the, on the idealist end hard, you are crazy because you really think you're Jesus Christ or you're a cult leader or you're, you really think that everything is subjective and therefore you are controlling all of reality. If you really go that far into idealism. And the alternate is materialism, which always ends in nihilism because you have a hard answer, but in order to get that hard answer, you have to deny everything inside of you that screams, I have an ideal, I have an ideal existence. Um, and so, and so, those two are in contrast. So, in order to bridge those two, uh, and that every philosophical system, every religion, uh, you know, every construct that we've ever come up with is a bridge between those two things, trying to find a balance. And they all need three things to make an effective bridge: story, relationship, and mystery. And they all have different balances. Uh, so, Buddhist has its own very particular structure of bridge uh, includes all three of those things um, and each person individually makes their own bridge but you know some people make it very as a type of Buddhist some people make it as a type of Christian bridge uh, and everybody's trying to find their own flex but I don't like the whole everything is a subjective thing um, if you go there you end up in a spot of craziness what, what I'm saying is that subjective reality is the relevant one to human experience because no, I think they're both relevant. No, they're, they're not. It, maybe the tension, maybe the dialectic tension you're talking about is in the sense that that's what draws us out, right? So there's a tension between what Arthur's saying and the tension between what Chuck's saying. There's a dialectic tension created there, subjective reality. He's speaking to an objective reality, right? So and I get that. But what's interesting is that from a healer's perspective, when, you, when you're working in the spaces that we work in, you spend time with all these people. Everyone is simply functioning inside their truth. And you are trying to show them how their truth is crushing them or killing them in some way. You know, I got this guy. But that's just the fact of you trying to show them is, is the them interacting with, with the, the objective. Yeah, and yeah. It's for that, yeah, I totally agree with you on that one. I just think it's it's a fascinating thing because you don't that that's the big question. Is you go, oh my gosh, why does that guy who's clearly suffering so much? It's just it's just like it's just heartbreaking. But you can see he doesn't really want to change at all. And this guy over here is suffering a little bit, and he's like, I'll do anything. I'll, you know, <laughs> there's a subjective reality that is the functionality of it all. So maybe that's the engine driving the entire thing. You You're know? like using an objective to pull him into a subjective. <laughs> well, that, and then he's right. You know, we had this time the other day. We were talking about Hegel because we were talking about the dialectic tensions. And that's everything. And that's even you can break that down to even when you get into quantum theory. So I'm talking about the, the dialectic tensions of how quantum physics work. Is that's where all the, the research is being done. You know what I mean? How people are being, how the world is being pulled apart, how the universe is being pulled apart. But that's what we do is we kind of, you kind of sit there and you, and you work with people and you realize there's a gap between what they believe and what they actually believe. Mm-hmm. What they, you know what I mean? Yeah. Believe between what they feel and what they think. You know, there's all these giant gaps in them and you're just trying to help them close that gap. And it's a fascinating and that's done in science. That's done in medicine with placebo, right? Like you're taking an objective... Subjective. Well, well, the subjective is taking the pill. 
because right. you don't know you're taking a placebo you or you're taking a, yeah. yeah. I just got a fucking backache and I need that to go away. And oh shit, I took this pill. Sugar pill. Yeah. And it made it go away. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was a placebo. Well, no, it wasn't. Cause it, <laughs> but that's something that's true, right? And so you have, yeah. to, you have to see that the, a placebo is that subjective experience of someone taking something that will or will not work. And I don't want the whole that's episode to revolve science. around this issue. Um, but I would at least challenge you in this. I think that the people that come to you don't have a problem with the language. Sure. I think it's a barrier for people who don't come to you. Mm-hmm. And they don't even come because the language itself, because language is nothing more than a way to communicate. And right now you're using language that some people just can't deal with. What keeps you from it? No. But it, like I said, it's less triggering, like what Derek was saying for me, and it's more just irritating. In I find it inarticulate and a poor medium for actually communicating what you're trying to do. Because I think you get caught up in the baggage that the words you're using already mean in the English language. I think it's especially bad right now because we have so many angry men who are isolated that need this kind of treatment. And they, in particular, will not respond well to that language. They yeah. just won't. That's fascinating. What do you think of Like it's too woo-woo or something? Yeah. yeah. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't even think about the people that come to me or not, and if I want to grow my practice, I think the people will come to me that need to come to me and that are ready to come to me, and I totally trust that process. So there is something really subjective and like kind of blankety for you. Um, <laughs> I have never been a person that... I mean, I got a 4.0 in grad school. I was, like, voted best student of the year when I graduated. But I have never enjoyed the frontal lobe. <laughs> so that's not... Yeah, I when I operate in the subjective spiritual realm, I'm home. And I can totally trust that. And, um, in fact, I used to find it kind of exhausting and anxiety-provoking to be in the frontal lobe. So that's why I don't even engage you much in it, because... <laughs> not really that interested so which is okay like that we're different people in that way but um yeah when well I think we're seeing some interesting barriers like you were talking about Derek about like the communication being like a pinhole and then we're seeing so I think like your frontal lobe a lot of times has that's a place where a lot of the resistance happens because you sure. people the, the colloquialism is you're overthinking it mm-hmm. um you know, but we're finding in like the PTSD trials with MDMA, where the frontal lobe gets triggered. Where you know, hey, you have this trauma and it's really, really bad. And if you go to counseling for it, it triggers it, and you never get anywhere because all you do is like, you, well, you yeah. you poke them to where it, yeah. it, it it's if it's like a wound, it's like you're stabbing them in the right. wound it's that exists. Yeah, and and it just and then the MDMA makes it so that they can talk about it and they don't care because they're so freaking high on serotonin that all of a sudden it's safe to talk about it's like lidocaine to you know have your tooth removed Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you can have a tooth yanked out of your face and you don't care anymore Um, and that tool helps numb that defense mechanism right and I do greatly admire neurology I understand all this language that you're speaking about I used to articulate that to parents all the time of children I worked with 
Um, and I do, I mean, I like, I think some people need to start with therapy just for an awareness. I mean, when I started therapy, I remember my therapist, I mean, I lost my shit in my marriage, and I was like, what in the world? Who am I? I can't believe I would do that. And it scared me and was really uh, humbling. Against her. I've got the worst counselor ever. And anyway, so <laughs> I ended Supportive up. Supportive husband. <laughs> my therapist would ask me questions like, well, That's not know, just basic questions about my childhood. And I was like, I don't even know. So my awareness was lacking completely. I mean, before that, I thought my worst trauma was that Seth broke my heart when I was 19 years old because he thought I was the one. And then he ended up breaking up with me and I opened my heart to him. So it, awareness and having talk therapy and having presence was really important, having witness. But then once I became aware, I needed to move beyond that because nothing was changing um, until I did lifespan integration, did EMDR, and um, then White Raven came on board. And I mean, I think for me too that I've always been drawn to Native American practices spiritually because I'm half Native South American um, from Bolivia and it was like the closest thing that I could access and so the first time I heard like Floyd open like ceremony with like this Haida chant I like just wept it felt like home um, and I just knew I could trust it and here I knew yeah um, so what changed from you at that point, you talk, You you just used a phrase where you, you talked about becoming aware, but you were still like stuck there, and it wasn't until I'm trying to rephrase maybe what you're saying that you experienced some of the white raven stuff that you moved forward from that. Well, it was when I started lifespan when I started nonverbal therapy, like stuff that you know bypasses our frontal lobe that gets into the shadow work and what they say in the energy world gets into the subconscious mind they say in the clinical world or gets into the parts of us where the trauma is so fragmented and disorganized that it could access the stuff that's stored in my body and in those deep parts of my brain. So can you describe like what was stuck and what it was like getting through that? This will conclude part one of this audio program. Want to hear part two? Fuck yeah! Right. Thanks for listening to Punk Theology. Don't forget to subscribe, like to join us in having more ears hear this punk sound. Please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio or wherever you may hear this fucking podcast. Punk Theology is the property of Digital Audio Project who is responsible for its content. But I don't want to be an asshole anymore.